The Over the Bonnet podcast is brought to you by Merrymark Medical, Gimpy Foam and Rubber and NICAD Earth Moving. My guest today is Arthur Gorry, a veteran journalist who is now enjoying semi-retirement still working at the new Gimpy Today newspaper in the print media while newspapers around the country are being closed down. He's also worked for the Daily Telegraph, the ABC and spent over 10 years with the Gympie Times before it was closed down along with regional newspapers across the country and is helping to keep the printers rolling and it's a pleasure to have him in the studio today for Over the Bonnet. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. (laughs) Well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Arthur Gorry, welcome to Over the Bonnet. How are you, Mark? You're a long-standing journalist. How did you get into it in the first place? Well, I think it was easier in those days, even though there were fewer media outlets. There, uh, there wasn't a university course available then. It was 1971. 70, I finished school, so I just wrote letters to everybody. And in those polite, genteel days, you actually got a response, even if it was no. And I got, <laughs> I got, I got a, a thank you, your letter's been placed on file, we don't have any room for you at the moment, sort of thing, from every, every television station, which I think was three at that stage, and a couple of radio stations that had newsrooms, and uh, the Brisbane Telegraph was actually hiring, so... They had two appli- oh, no, eight applicants for two jobs, and I got one of them. So, Why do you think you got the job? Well, that's a, my theory, is that I went in to see the Chief of Staff in the... It was in the building that uh, the Courier-Mail and the Australian uh, are in now, I think, um, at Bowen Hills. And the Chief of Staff's office was this uh, glass-walled thing that was quite intimidating like it was surrounded by people who seemed to know what they were doing and I didn't know what I was doing and I walked in and I sat down and this grim-faced person who turned out to be the nicest person in Australia Frank Watkinson was the chief of staff and uh, he uh, he just looked at me and asked me a few questions like this and he said wait here and he went out the door and he didn't come back for probably an hour or so and I just sat there. I was too scared to move. But he took it as a sign of determination and gave me the job. So I accidentally passed a test, I think. They must have been halcyon days in the media. Well, I don't know. There's, I think they've got... The media's got a bit better in a lot of ways since then, but I think it was... Um, uh, I, I don't know. It was It was better for newspapers because there wasn't much competition... There was television just starting out and radio to some extent. And uh, uh, and I guess that ultimately killed the afternoon newspaper like The Telegraph. But, uh, but you know, they weren't bad days. I probably didn't realise how lucky I was because young people often don't. So, But I, I, I got a good start with The Telegraph. You've seen the decline of newspapers over the years. How have you felt about that starting off as a newspaper reporter? That's right. Oh, well, um, and I've done some radio since too. I, I'm not... Uh, and uh, accidentally television sometimes, but uh, uh, not that much. I don't think it's... Uh, it hasn't really bothered me that much. I, it was a bit of a shame to see the Gimpy Times cease to exist as a print 
paper after you know 150 more than 150 years so that was a a lot of those things are sad it was sad to see the telegraph go out of business um, uh, and, and a lot of that has happened but uh, there always seem to be jobs to be picked up elsewhere because of the diversity that's also come into the industry and it has had to diversify because newspapers essentially are going to be a thing of the past but not for you you've started at Gimpy today yes well I'm probably even more old-fashioned than that um the 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 you know it's quite possible newspapers will um, become a thing of the past but I think that's up to the customers it's not up to uh, anyone in the industry to tell people they're not allowed to read newspapers anymore because they haven't quite gone out of fashion yet. They possibly will. I think the tablet's probably going to be a uh, an easier way to read a newspaper. I, I personally think that website design has a long way to go in newspapers. It, it isn't captivating. It doesn't... You, you can't browse um, and just have things catch your eye. You have to actually know what you're looking for. I... I I think there's some things to be improved there before online becomes um, any... Well, it's pretty successful, but I think it needs to be... They have to find out how to make money out of it too. A lot of people like to actually hold the newspaper. Hmm. Are you surprised that that is the case, especially with the closure of the Gimpy Times and a lot of regional papers around the country? Are you surprised that the reaction has been what it was? Well using myself as a survey sample of one I, I i like i like to actually get away from computers i work with them quite a lot and they drive me nuts and uh, i like to sit out on the deck or you know stretch out with a paper and have a read i still like to read a book too um, so perhaps perhaps that will um, will disappear but i think it could be something like tablets becoming a form of newspaper in that you can maybe click on some sort of designed product that um, that attracts your attention the way the way newspapers have evolved to do over hundreds of years well it was interesting i remember when i started as a journo we'd always refer to the paper when we were sourcing stories are you disappointed that they are going well hey it is the way you'd look at what happened in the newspaper it would drive a lot of what was happening that and radio yeah yes well, that's what I read in the papers, <laughs> and I think, I think I read in the papers these days that the papers aren't going to be around for long. But I, I still think they have to find a better substitute than the average um, website. How have you found with Gimpy today? How have you found the reaction to that? Oh, people seem to like it. Mm. It's walking out the door. The news agents say it's. Uh, it's selling well. So, whatever the future may hold for newspapers, they're not over yet. And uh, I, I might be over before they are, so I don't mind that. Uh, if they don't mind if they're around, but if they go, they go. It'll be what people decide they want. You were based in Brisbane. What brought you to Gimpy? Oh well, all sorts of things. Um, uh, I was living at the Sunshine Coast for a while, and uh, and uh, doing what people do when they go into semi-retirement too early. I ran out of money. <laughs> and somebody pointed out there was an ad in the Gimpy Times for a journalist. And um, because I knew this person from the pub, I actually forgot about it. And then uh, uh, he asked me how I'd gone with that job application. And I thought, oh, my God, I better 
So I rang up and asked them if they'd take a late application, and they did, and I got the job. So, so I'm here, and uh, and and really like it. It's a it's a little gem, Gimpy. It really is. Do you think that it's still got that bad reputation, or has it gone past that from what you've seen as a journalist? I think in recent years it's gone past that because there's lots of new people coming here and lots of people who weren't here when some of that, and it's nonsense, happened, really. A lot of that, uh, the Helltown stuff, was one article in Australian Penthouse, probably the only article in Penthouse magazine that anyone ever read. I've heard that one before. (laughs) And the only one that anyone in in the cities took seriously, and I I put that down to urban prejudice. I think there uh, is a tendency of people in the city to just like to find someone to look down their noses at and country people fall into the, that category quite often. What's the reaction to that story or the influence of that story, do you think, has, has had on the town of Gympie? Oh, I think it was shocking. It was horrible. Uh, you find young people would go to university in Brisbane and they'd tell their friends they were from the Sunshine Coast because they didn't <laughs> want to admit they were from Gympie. And, uh, and people started talking about changing the name of the town and things, and I, I just think... Uh, you should defy that sort of thing, really. And I think it has pretty much disappeared now. But that was nonsense, you know. That that article was just rubbish. You've covered a lot of stories here in the town of Gympie and in the Kalula area. What are some of the stories that have stood out for you over the years? Well, millions of stories we wrote about the Traverson Crossing Dam. Um, that was... That was an incredible issue. It went on for about three and a half years. Um, and at the time, the people at the company that then owned the Gympie Times were urging us to get involved in community campaigns. And Michael Rosa, who was the editor, thought, well, this is one. And uh, on the first day uh, that it was announced, he, he said, we we're going to campaign against this and uh, and turned me loose. And it was great fun. It was like working for... a a student newspaper in a way I had a free reign to be radical and we just drove up and down just about every second dirt road in the Merry Valley and spoke to every second person who lived in them it seemed and uh, got some great stories from a community perspective and eventually won but uh, largely because of Peter Garrett rather than us probably but uh, I'd say the community campaign that we were part of probably probably did uh, make a big difference. It was pretty powerful. Yeah, yeah. But then so's a determined and stubborn government. And uh, really, if Peter Garrett hadn't been a fundamentally honest person, um, and that's not something that I would necessarily say about everyone I've met in politics, but he seemed to be... I mean, the pressure on him to to approve the dam must have been enormous within the Labor Party. Do you think it was? Oh, I'd, I'd say so. I think... Uh, well, he had... Uh, They'd spent millions of dollars buying up properties in advance without any permission for the project to go ahead. They'd started work on it without permission for it to go ahead, uh, although they said it wasn't a start on work, it was just surveying and drilling. Well, a lot of people think of that as work, and uh, it had so started. And they just wanted it to be too advanced for anyone in practical terms to to knock it on the head, and Peter Garrett did anyway, and it was a, it was a great moment. I got the chance to say thank you. Are you surprised how they did do that? With the, the uh, endangered species like the uh, 
the bum-breathing turtle, as everyone likes to talk about <laughs> it, and and the lungfish. Um, yeah, I think those things were were important. We seem to have we seem to have elements of real stupidity in our decision-making process, and I uh, and, and I'm stupid sometimes too. But I can't believe that they put fish ladders on dams because it works for salmon in North America. But not all fish are salmon. And lungfish, they reckon the Paradise Dam had a fish ladder and one lungfish used <laughs> it. And someone said to me, that lungfish is worth about $1.8 million or some figure. And <laughs> died uh, on the way down. <laughs> it, probably, it probably did. Um, salmon jump upstream. Possibly mullet might too, I don't know. But uh, uh, there was uh, just an assumption that that that's, you could just find an American solution for Australian species, and and the Paradise Dam was there, and it's a it's been a disaster ever since it was built, um, and uh, I think that tended to make the engineering argument effective too, because there there could be some doubt about whether the engineers knew what they were talking about. What do you like writing stories about? You've been writing them for a long time now. What Floats your boat. Oh, I like talking to, I like talking to people. Um, it's really interesting. The ordinary people. I was, I was inspired years and years ago by a book called Blue Highways, and there've been a few since. And this fellow in America um, had his midlife crisis and bought a van to live in and set about driving around America on all the highways that no one used anymore, which were marked blue on the map. And he just interviewed the people in the service station and the woman who cut his hair in New Mexico or something and uh, uh, and he had some tremendous stories and I thought that's where the interesting stories are the the real stories of of ordinary people who aren't celebrities but maybe some of them should be ordinary people with extraordinary stories yeah yeah and who do extraordinary things yeah a lot of people do extraordinary things in this town are you surprised by that i've been i've been really surprised by the the uh, well, I think the BT government was surprised with the dam too at how uh, these people they dismissed as rednecks probably in the Merry Valley turned out to include people who were experts in in all sorts of uh, strategically important businesses uh, that um, you know they were just smart as can be and and they managed to develop strategies that beat the government. So, without spending the millions of dollars the government did. Was it right that a lot of people, or some people, made a lot of money out of it by rebuying their properties, renting them for not a lot, and then being able to buy them back at a much reduced rate? I don't think anyone complained about the prices <laughs> that were offered for the properties. Um, they, that, that was... Uh, uh, but, you know, and sometimes they were able to buy them back... But that's what happens when you do something stupid, as the government did. You know, they they uh, made this massive investment, paid people far more than the properties were worth um, economically. So that was the mistake. Well, it was just part of their arrogance that they this was going to go ahead, and and it was all because of the millennium drought, um, and uh, the dam couldn't have been built in the before the dams in Brisbane ran dry. Um, 
and uh, and they didn't run dry. It wasn't uh, it wasn't that the climate had changed and turned uh, southeast Queensland into a desert. One day it did rain. It flooded, as as often happens, and uh, there um, there really wasn't. Uh, what I find really frustrating about that, though, is for all those painful lessons that led to ideas like having uh, rainwater tanks as a condition of approval for houses, um, all that stuff's gone. Mm. Within five years of ordinary weather, raining occasionally, all those lessons were forgotten. And I've, I've found that over the last 15 or so years in, in Gympie, you, you see this in a lot of, uh, a lot of governments, uh, and a lot of people's behaviour. We do, in fact, forget and adapt. And something that seemed like a terrible crisis five years ago, everyone's forgotten about it. And uh, all the lessons are forgotten too. Do you look back over your old work and go, hmm, that was a lesson that I learned or didn't learn? <laughs> oh, yeah, if, to the extent that I look back over it, I sometimes think, oh, well, I was wrong about that or I was right about that or whatever. Um, I'm glad I got away with that <laughs> sort of thing. So what have you got away with when you're... I wouldn't get away with it if I told you. <laughs> <laughs> no, but sometimes you get you just get it, get it wrong. Um, um, just a factual error here and there. Sometimes they're not that important. If they are important, you have to run a correction. Um, and that doesn't always solve the problem. So you have to try not to be inaccurate, but, you know, nobody's perfect. Can you get away with more in the country? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. Possibly possibly not, because it's more personal if you make a mistake that actually hurts somebody. It's somebody that you might pass in the street. So, you know, in some ways you might uh, be more likely to be forgiven, and in some ways you might be uh, more likely to run into the person you've done wrong and uh, have to apologise. So you might as well just apologise in print and try and fix it as well as you can. And get to as many people as you possibly can. Yeah, well, there was a, a, a fellow called David Broder who used to work for the Washington Post and he wrote a book called Behind the Front Page and he said that journalists should come down off their high horse and we'd be a lot better liked in the community if we didn't pretend to be, to be perfect. And he said uh, what we should tell people is that we're... We work under pressure, writing a book every day um, in an environment where people are either lying to us or concealing things from us. And um, we'll be back tomorrow with a corrected and updated version. And we should just ask people to understand that we, uh, we're not perfect, but we shouldn't try to pretend that we are. Where do you put journalists on the totem pole of community... Uh, jobs and expectation and where you sit in the community as a whole? Don't know. I don't know. Um, Has I, it changed over the years? I, look, people say one thing and do another, and that includes all of us, and uh, everyone complains about the media, but if you look at the numbers of people doing journalism courses at universities and colleges around the place, you'd have to say that everyone complains about the media but wants to be in it um so it's hard to it's hard to know i used to complain about the media and that's probably why i wanted to be in it i thought i could you know i'll do a better job than that but it's not as easy as that it's, uh, so you just do your best what's the hardest thing about being in the media 
uh, getting too wound up about uh, um, stories you've encountered and not being able to put it out of your mind at the end of the day um, getting uh, so and I think when you do make a mistake, you know, and, and you think, oh, my God, or if there's some bit of information at the last minute that you just can't find, um, like maybe the fifth name on a photograph of five people and you've only got four names <laughs> and you know you've done something wrong and there's no way you can fix it, and that's very stressful. Spelling mistakes, is that stressful for you, being on school? No, I'm quite good at them. I <laughs> I do lots of spelling mistakes. (laughs) I do them every day. Um, And in fact, a friend of mine noted that about um, Gimpy today, which um, she said, "Mm, you do repeat yourself a bit and uh, and you didn't spell that word. And that wasn't even the right word. And yes, but even spell check doesn't help you if you've got the wrong word altogether. As, as journalism has evolved and you do have things like Spellcheck and also Dr. Google or Professor Google, yeah. are they tools that are much more available and do you find them handy? Do you oh, still yes. use them? I use them all the time, yeah. I just about live on the internet, really, um, and Googling things. Uh, um, I wish I could invent a product that became a... Um, became a a word in the language like Googling, it means you've really been successful, doesn't it? And it makes research so much easier. Once upon a time, you had to know someone who who knew something. Now you can Google it. It's a, it's a lot easier than trying to find your favourite professor at 8 o'clock at night or something to ask them, you know, what they think of something. You can actually find out what it what the dictionary meaning is and what the history of it is and generally it's pretty pretty accurate with journalism as such and you're involved in newspapers and have been for for many years uh, you were talking about the fact that it's evolved do you think it's evolving in a good way journalism these days yeah i do i do um i think it's uh, uh it's getting to be more um sort of relaxed, less alarmist for people. I really, I get tired of um, of the uh, uh, blaring, you know, listen to this kind of, kind of news, which is what used to sort of happen all the time. And I think... Uh, I, Sensationalism? I, yeah, I suppose so. And of course, we're all, we all like to make our stories as interesting as possible, but... Um, I think people have quite enough stress in their lives now, and, and especially I think on a weekly paper, it's read over the weekend when people are, have actually got time to to relax and have a think about things. And it's a much, you know, it's it's probably better than an afternoon newspaper that has to sort of get into people's heads and somehow you know, when they're busy with other things. So. Because it is um, the weekly newspaper, as you say, going basically being read over the weekend is the style of what you put out different trying to cater for that are you you trying to market yourself towards that yeah probably i think um, it leaves more room for stories that are interesting rather than just um dramatic um and uh, of course there's still still nice to have the um you know the hard news and the drama and things but there's also room for a bit of thought about what the drama means 
and so forth if in a, in a weekly paper when people have got time to relax and have a read. So when you're actually writing stories, are you going to specifically look for a story that will be uh, focused on the the what you think people will want to read, or are you writing a story and then angling it? Oh, I I, I try to put myself in the place of, of readers, and because um, uh, the, they're who I'm writing for. It's like. Um, um, somebody said about songwriting, you know, there used to be all this thing with people, you know, when I was a teenager, people would talk about, oh, that's just so commercial. And uh, this fellow who was a songwriter said, well, if you don't have other people whistling your song on the bus, you may as well just be singing in the shower. You're not actually achieving anything. Uh, and... Uh, so I try to put myself in the reader's place and realise that I am working for them and that's why I get paid. So otherwise I would be just sounding off and I wouldn't have any reasonable, uh, any reason to uh, expect to be paid. But I'm trying to provide something that's of interest and, and use to, to people in this area. And so I'm conscious of who people in this area are. What a responsibility. With great power comes great responsibility. I think people are less inclined to be browbeaten or, or misled by the media. They're more questioning now. I don't know whether there is as much great power as there was. Um, was there too much power back in the day? Oh, I think there probably there probably was, I think. Um and I don't think there, there's more diversity now. There's other, people can just switch off. They can just change channels. They can just read it online. They've got a lot of options. So um, you've got to try and make sure that you're speaking to them in their language about things that matter to them. Because news is changing and the way people consume news is mm -hmm. really changing. Hey, Donald Trump is a perfect example of changing the landscape mm. on how news is delivered and consumed. The master of Twitter. Well, the master of Twitter. fake news. Yeah. As much as people um, would criticise his extreme statements on Twitter, they kind of worked, didn't they? You know, the extreme statements about North Korea kind of seemed to work. Um followed by extreme statements the other way and totally unpredictable. But uh, yeah, I, I think uh, yeah, there are, there's m many more media out there than, than there were before. We've got a new council and uh, a new focus here in Gympie. What do you think about the fact that the council essentially was swept out and we got a new one? Did people get it right? Yeah, I think, I think they... They did. The um, I thought the old council was. Uh, I didn't think it had been very good for quite a while. Um, and what do you put that down to? I think people. I blame some of it on the local government act. The local government laws um, were changed to make. CEOs more powerful and councillors less powerful and that was wrong absolutely wrong because the councillors are the ones who are elected um, 
and I believe it's just a matter of who people identify with and uh, I think lazy state government ministers do what their bureaucrats recommend and the local government bureaucrats tend to identify with CEOs because that's the kind of people they are and they gradually changed the Local Government Act or actually quite quickly changed it so that uh, councillors had strict limitations on what they could do and I think that was uh, yeah, I think that was very bad for local government in Queensland and uh, some of that's changing back just because people have um, thrown out councils that did nothing and, and put in councils well, when I say did nothing, didn't didn't question things, you know. I, I, since for all his uh, for, for all his uh, bombastic behaviour at times, Mick Venatis uh, was the mayor who opposed the Traveston Crossing Dam. As soon as he finished supporting it, uh, when he realised he was wrong, <laughs> after telling us. You can quote me on this. A town that saved Queensland with gold will now save Queensland with water. And uh, within 24 hours, he said he was taken out of context. Um, was he? No, no, no. He specifically emphasised it. But the the thing about Mick was that he was responsive to the electorate in that way, and he would. He was probably the last mayor who would have opposed the Traveston Crossing Dam. I don't think Ron Dine would have. Why is that? It's just not the mindset that he had. Um, he was a, 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 a military officer who was used to trying to get, and an engineer, his job was to get jobs done efficiently and well, but uh, political dissent wasn't his bag. Was he a good man? Oh, yeah, I think so. But he, w- he wouldn't have been good in the Traveston Crossing Dam situation, I don't think. We were just, we were just lucky. What about McCurran? No, I don't think he would have either. I don't know. It's hard to say because it's extremely hypothetical um, what people would have done, but I know that they did try to introduce new standing orders to the council which would have prevented the council from even discussing anything like that because it wasn't a council issue. It was an issue that affected the area that the council represented, but uh, there was a, a... proposed change to the uh, standing orders of the council some years ago that would have meant the councillors were only allowed to discuss things that were within their area of responsibility. They wouldn't be able to discuss other issues of concern. And that didn't quite get through, I, I don't think. It just shows it wouldn't have happened um, now if, if the government had gone ahead with that dam. I don't think... Uh, I don't think the... Dine or Curran councils would have uh, opposed it in the way, and I don't know whether the Hartwig Council would either. I don't. I don't really know, but I suspect there would be. Um, I, I suspect they would do more to resist it uh, on behalf of the uh, constituents. What about the new council? Just talking about the Hartwig Council. Is it a breath of fresh air as what you're seeing as a journalist from what's happened? I think so. I mean, I, I know I reserve the right to be disappointed one day, but I think <laughs> I think they're much more open, uh, and, and uh, you know, they all everyone uses the words transparency and openness, but um, uh, this one actually does seem to be. They've just had a review of council operations. They're going to make it completely public, 
Um, and I just, I don't think they're under any obligation to do that. So we, I, I like the tendency towards but towards openness, even with things that might be self-critical. Yeah, well, there was a lot of behind closed doors and backroom dealing in the previous council and, well, in councils, as you say, across the board. So we need to become more transparent across the board. I actually have a, a, a fairly radical position on that. I, every now and again, governments that can't be trusted with their personal information, as we saw in the census where they fell in love with their uh, computer equipment salespeople and... Uh, it ended up leaking this confidential information and the identities of the people. Uh, it all was able to be hacked. Um, and I sort of think if, if governments expect us to answer all those intrusive personal questions, don't they owe us a complete degree of absolute openness? I think everything should be open unless it's a commercial secret that will send someone broke if, you know, how to make... Coca-Cola or chewing gum uh, gets out there, uh, it will ruin a business. I can see why that's a secret, but I can't see why much else is a secret in government. There shouldn't, and if it's not national security and it's not a commercial secret that's uh, somebody's property, uh, it should be. It, government should be completely open. I think, and I see no excuse. They, and everyone says, "Oh no, we couldn't have that." You know, I don't think we need to do this, Minister. Uh, well, yes, we do. Um, otherwise, I think people are going to get sick of filling in census forms one day if the government wants all that information and isn't prepared to uh, to give it back. With the um, the transparency that we are sort of now getting, um, is that sort of kind of dangerous, though? Should we go be going back and, and retrospectively looking at what happened, oh. essentially in financial problems? Yeah, they're having a look at those things, I think. Um, and look, if it comes out that somebody was responsible for a bad decision, I, I, um, it's easy to be responsible for a bad decision. I don't want to, you know, um, shoot people for for uh, just making an honest mistake. But it's, uh, but also, I, I don't even know if we need to go... There are some issues we should be looking back into uh, if they're big and important, but uh, maybe just doing the right thing from here on in would be a big improvement. And we are, from oh, what you're seeing? Um, I think I'm seeing an improvement, I think, mm. yeah. yeah. When you're writing stories and you sort of say that some things stay with you, what sort of story really stays with you? Well, again, this story is about ordinary people uh, and uh, doing extraordinary things and extraordinary campaigns, giant killing issues where big corporate or government bullies get sat back on their backside. Um, I love that, and uh, I think most people do. Uh, and we continue to be outraged at stories where they don't, where the bad guys win, which happens uh, often enough if we can work out who they are. Um, which side's good and which side's bad, but uh, I, I think the it comes back to openness. The more we know, the the better, and because it's a democracy. So how are we going to make an informed decision if we don't know the facts of issues? If things are kept secret from us, um, it's like 
they say with computers, garbage in, garbage out. Um, even the smartest collection of voters in the world will make a mistake if they're misled. So I think we have a big obligation to try and get as much truth as we possibly can, even out of reluctant people. And it's only one term, though, if they uh, really get it wrong. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, yeah. Um, or less, if they really, really get it wrong but, uh, and get into trouble. But uh, yeah. Who's your favourite politician? Oh, gosh. Oh, the tough ones, eh? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Do you like politicians? I feel a lot of sympathy for them sometimes <laughs> um, uh, because cause they, get, they get subjected to so much intrusive and personal uh, uh, sort of examination. Uh, I feel. However, it's something they do put their hand up for. Yeah, but it makes you wonder whether you can ever get normal people putting up their hand for things, um, you know, um, if you're going to... Um, bring up stupid things they did when they were drunk you know and these days I feel so sorry I was so glad we didn't have Facebook when I was uh, younger and even more stupid um, imagine um, you know there's no obliterating any of that there's no erasing it there's no taking still it there yeah. it's still there in, in 20 years time when you're trying to be Prime Minister and uh, there's that stupid thing you did at a party you know in video in colour is that what's wrong with the internet these days? The fact that you oh. can't erase it? Well, probably it's a little too easy. Everything everything that's convenient can be sometimes a little too convenient. I mean, emails are an extremely convenient way of communicating, but uh, most people probably have about 10,000 that they haven't read, so they're a little too easy. Uh, so uh, with every benefit comes a, a disadvantage, I suppose. The main thing that politicians suffer from is our expectations of them. I think we need to just work out what we want people to do and put, I'd put a priority on honesty and uh, strategic intelligence and, and just try and leave out, you know, whether they were a stripper in a former life or not. It doesn't matter. Does it? Does no. it not matter? No. Is it say, could it influence, though, if they've got that mindset that they might not have it again? What mindset? Well, if I was a stripper back in the day... Yeah. I remember. Uh, <laughs> I think I saw that show. <laughs> um, if I was a stripper back in the day, it may still continue to influence my thinking. Oh, I, and I suppose people are entitled to work out exactly who it is there they're voting for. You might have a bit of a point there, somewhere in somewhere in the grey area in between. Would you have made a good politician? Most journos at some stage yeah. think that they could have made a good poly. Oh, had a bit of a go at, at it through union politics and uh, um, and I'll tell you my side of the story and it'll take all day and other <laughs> people will tell you something else. Um, but I think I basically... Um, couldn't possibly do it. It was just too soul-destroying to be constantly targeted by um, malicious criticism and things like that. Even though I had a lot of support, um, I also... Um, yeah, I was probably a bit too thin-skinned, but you don't want to be too insensitive if you're going to be responsive to what people want. And I, I found I got to the stage where I'd be... Um, I was only interested in getting into politics, as, as with the media, because I thought I could 
do something that other people weren't doing. But I realised after a while that I'd become as much a reptile as anybody else if I <laughs> were able to develop the thick skin and the calculating intelligence needed to survive. And I thought, well, I no, the world's bigger than that. I, I quit. So, If you're in state politics, what would you change? Well, you can be in state politics and not really have the power to change anything. Um, so assuming that I had uh, an amazing grasp on power and influence, at any level of government I would change it so that the bureaucrats once again were on tap rather than on top <laughs> and, would, <laughs> and, and would advise rather than basically set the rules of the game. And we have far too many lazy ministers who just never, ever dominate their departments. And strangely enough, uh, perhaps the ministers that do dominate their departments, there's other things we don't like about them. Um, but uh, the Yes Minister uh, Society really does exist. It was a very perceptive uh, television program. Do you think they got it right? Oh, yeah, yeah, I think. And some people still think that ministers should take the advice of their advisers, and I think they should consider the advice of their advisers, but not necessarily take it. becomes very hard for a person with who comes in and has maybe a year or two as the minister for something, uh, and the head of the department's been there for 20 years, knows where everything is, knows whether it can be found or not. Um, they are the Humphrey. Yeah, and they're... Um, they're much better at it than most ministers who are so busy trying to just hope that nothing too much goes wrong before they're in their next episode or something, you know. Uh, well, look at David often... Gibson, what happened to him? Yes, and David Gibson, and I think we can look at um, a lot of bureaucracies where ministers, I think, have consciously decided they're just not going to take them on. It's too, it's too hard to take on the bureaucrats. Is that the same in local government or has been up until now? I think it's become worse with those changes in the Local Government Act. That, uh, uh, but, you know, that at one stage a long, long time ago, the Local Government Association was... There's always this tension between the elected and the non-elected people. It's probably not such a bad thing in a way, but the Local Government Association was once run by a fellow called Fred Rogers, who was uh, a Shire chairman, and he spent every waking hour... Um, on that job and local governments um, and the local government association were, I think, much more uh, inclined towards democratic control by elected people in those days. And it's just got worse since, I think. I think we're, uh, when you get to a stage where it's a democracy in name only if the minister's just time-serving or, or, you know... Hoping to, for, are most of them they time-serving or are they trying to make a difference? Do you think that I people will get in and have the right intention and then get caught up into the whole party machine? I guess time-serving is one thing, but careerism is another. And I think some of them are concentrating on their careers. And that means not upsetting too many people. Um, and... Uh, as Murphy's Law says, uh, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate, and they certainly <laughs> do in politics, and one day you get shot. Um, so 
I can see the terrible position they're in, but they're not doing their job if they don't control their departments a lot better than most of them do at the moment. Our crop of current politicians, do you think there's too many career politicians amongst them or people trying to feather their own nest? Oh, I think, yeah, I think, oh, I think careerism, it's, it's actually not dishonest, but it annoys me. Um, you know, there's no, I don't think there's a lot of people motivated by uh, ideals so much in politics. They're motivated by their careers. And if that doesn't happen in the beginning, it pretty soon happens halfway through when they make a decision about whether they're going to survive in politics or not. And uh, I don't know how people... I don't know how people do it, but um, there's not too many politicians leave on their own terms. They're almost all defeated at some stage. So it's a pretty... It's a pretty thankless job as well, much as it's easy for me to criticise, but it's a, it is a thankless job. It is interesting, as you say, a lot of people have plans of, when they go into politics, of going, yep, I'm going to make a difference, and they fall into the party machine, uh, party machine and then they really just follow the rank and file and get voted out eventually because they didn't follow that dream that they had. Yeah, or they get voted out because they did follow that dream that they had and somebody didn't like it. Um, so I don't uh, I don't uh, really know. One of my pet annoyances is the um, uh, Queensland Parks and Wildlife Service. I've just become I'm quite outraged over the years at uh, some of the things that they've done. I remember they had a, a committee uh, which was an advisory committee uh, that recommended a lot of things that were departmental policy. And the committee was about half departmental representatives and the other half were community representatives or um, or Noosa Parks Association. And Noosa Parks Association's done a wonderful job. But the QPWS is their landlord at Double Island Point, so they are not independent and they are not community. They're... Uh, and so this false thing was put up that justified the department's policy and probably fooled the minister too. And you get things like that happening all the time in in politics and bureaucracy. And it's almost impossible for ministers to, to really do what I think they should do, and that's control their department. Um, probably one of the people who controlled his departments the best was was Russ Hins, and of course uh, he had... He Minister had, for everything. Yes, and he had he had well-known flaws too. Um, uh, so, yeah, nobody's perfect, are they? Well, that's true. So what sort of books do you read? You say you're an avid reader. What sort of books do you like reading? I like Michael Connolly detective novels. I think they're fantastic. I think he's a fantastic writer, and uh, I've read enough of them now to sort of be able to... Uh, I, I should know the formula, but it, it's uh, I don't really. But no, I I just like entertaining uh, reading, and I like reading uh, odd points of view, different points of view um, in uh, in more serious articles and so forth. But uh, yeah, I'm go very much going through a Michael Connolly phase at the moment. I I went through a Lee Child phase at one stage, but now I realise that. Uh, much as everyone needs a big hulking um, 
goon to hang around with <laughs> or to solve their problems for them every now and again when they come through town all his all his plot stories seem to be pretty much the same um and uh, yes but eh, I, I like a good i like a good detective a good mystery story or a good good uh, dramatic story are you an aspiring novelist being a writer essentially uh, a professional writer are you no. an aspiring novelist not really i don't think i can do it I don't think I can do it. I think it's an amazing other skill altogether is to take something that isn't true, has no particular meaning and is so captivating that people can't stop reading it. Uh, I think uh, I think that's an amazing skill and I dips me lid to um, to anyone who can uh, who can do that successfully. Are you surprised that when you read a novel how much the what the mind can conceive? The stories that oh, they yeah. come up with, the plots. The yeah, oh yes, and keep all those balls in the air at once, uh, <laughs> juggling while riding a unicycle on a tightrope. But um, <laughs> it's amazing what um, what authors um, can do. And I, I I know one or two quite good writers, and uh, and they're they're um, uh, way beyond me. I don't know how they do it. Can a writer become a good journalist? Oh, probably. Um, probably it's one of the good things about journalism is almost anyone can, uh, uh, if you can see something and and describe it simply and tell people something about it in a way that also expresses its significance to your readers so that they're actually interested. Um yeah, that's really all there is to it. You don't have to make up characters. You don't need to make up any characters in politics. They're there. Because um, these days the keyboard warriors can have free access with the internet, with mm. all sorts of things, YouTube, you name it, that you can get out and write what you want. Uh, are you still writing what you want or are you dictated? Oh, I, I'm not dictated too very much, but I'm, I benefit greatly from trying to see it from other people's point of view I really think I've got my own opinions and I bore people with them at great length in my own time but is it hard though not to put your opinion in well it's not that I, I don't even try that much if my opinion is sort of something that reflects what I think are the interests of the people who might be reading the story because I'm writing for them and uh, if I can express something on their behalf um, and if I can identify and empathise with, you know, people in manufacturing or farming, even though I'm not in either, um, then maybe I can see what's important to them. Uh, and tourism, they're, the th they're three big industries and conservation's another big interest and in education. So I, I'm conscious of who's out there and I try to empathise with what I think might be their point of view. And often when you ring them up, they've got a different point of view altogether. You know, I, during the COVID thing when the borders were locked and there were people cheating, you know, those girls from Logan who went to Melbourne and came back and so forth um, with COVID-19. I rang up Tony Goodman of the Chamber of Commerce because I expected him to be outraged at the effect, this, you know, the threat to business and after everything everyone had gone through to try and uh, defeat it. And uh, he said, oh, yeah, but we've, we've got to keep in mind that sometimes we've got to be compassionate too. And I thought, oh, gosh, Tony, you're surprising me. And, um, uh, 
it, it's it happens quite a lot that people people can sometimes have have a different point of view and a, and a better point of view than you thought they might have. Because you're asking people for their points of view all the time, or you say so you're constantly being surprised, constantly being surprised, constantly confused, <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just try to. Uh, to uh, find what I think is interesting to those people in all the circumstances that, that I run into. And uh, I like talking to ordinary people about what they're up to and, uh, and you know, just walking into a shop and asking them how they're going in the business. And usually there's a story and a picture in it. It's, it's not hard if you actually just respect people enough to ask them what's going on. So does a good journalist make a great listener? Yeah, probably. I mean, you don't get into the blah, blah, blah industry because you're a good listener. <laughs> but you have to be. You have to learn that skill, I think, uh, and uh, uh, so that you've got something to talk about. Newspapers has been your primary focus over the years. Do you wish you'd gone into broadcast and also um, video media? Well, I went into, into radio... I spent a few years in ABC radio and also commercial radio. Um, but uh, I was too shy for television. I really... Uh, damn good looking, but too shy. <laughs> Great face for radio. <laughs> <laughs> too shy, but you're out in the public. Is yeah. that... Is it I'm not as shy as I used to be. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm fully equipped to be a very successful 20-year-old now. <laughs> And I'm only 67, so I'm not that far behind. What have you learned out of media, though, over the years? Has it been a big learning tool for you? Or is it just oh, something yeah. that you do your job, go home and, and, and leave it? Well, I try to do my job, and when I go home, I try to leave it. But I, um, um, but I still have found it quite... It's big, a big learning experience. I, I've often found the learning curves like a brick wall you walk straight into. Um, especially with new, new media and uh, uh, new branches that you might take in a career that uh, that uh, trick you up sometimes. There's things you didn't realise. Um, sometimes, looking back, very obvious things. Uh, but yeah, it's all it's all learning. You said you retired once or tried to. Mm. When do you plan to retire now? I don't really want to at all. Actually. Um, I'm working three days a week, which is just enough to keep me flipping out from flipping out. <laughs> I, I have to be on planet Earth for three days a week, and uh, and uh, the other four days I can catch up with friends, go to the beach. It's it's great. I like being semi-retired. It's, and that's uh, what you consider yourself now. Or? Yeah. Well, I'm sort of not quite as semi. I'm semi-working. I, I think I'm still. <laughs> The emphasis is still on working because I, um, it just uh, it's on my mind a bit all the time, but uh, yeah. But I, I'm I'm quite actually this is this is the kind of job I should have had all my life. I'm really happy with it. Three days a week. Yeah, it's perfect. So when you're um, or if you're not looking to retire, you'll just just keep going and just keep writing stories. So on that four days off, is that when you're sourcing a lot of the stuff that you're writing about on those during those three days? Well, I I try to I try not to work too many hours that I'm not paid for, but I do do things. If things come up on those days, I'll do them, and then I'll try to 
find them a couple of hours on the days that I'm working, like I'm doing today, talking to you. I'll, I'm not uh, not getting much done for my employer while I'm talking to you, but I, I think that's... Um, uh, but I did some work on Wednesday, so... Um. <laughs> Was it a big risk setting up the Gimpy, time, uh, Gimpy today, sorry? Well, I didn't. I didn't. It's well, not, the fact that... It was it was done. Was that a big risk that Gimpy oh. today was? Well, I think the the people who um, publish it are a Victorian family company that have been publishing country newspapers for more than a hundred years. Um, so they know what they're doing, and any risk I think would have been a calculated one, a thoughtful one. And I don't think um, when the Gimpy Times retrenched uh, most of or all of its advertising staff, its administration staff and half of its journalists, um, they basically put a newspaper production kit out there in the street for someone to pick up if they wanted to. And uh, since the Gimpy Times was a profitable newspaper... um, this is one of the places where they thought this is a place where we could set up um, and uh, they've done the same thing in other areas, uh, Rockhampton, Bundaberg, North and South Burnett and Noosa. Did they make a mistake closing the Gimpy Times? I don't know. I don't know what their strategic thinking was, but uh, it must have been... Um, at a much higher level than the Gimpy Times because uh, I don't know why you would close down a business that's making money every day. But um, but I think there were coronavirus-related reasons that put them under a tremendous amount of pressure to take some big action and, uh, and I don't know whether all the other papers were making uh, money or being as successful as the Gimpy Times was. I, I don't know what the you know who knows what happens up on the you know the in the 30, echelons the, the yeah. hallways of or corridors of power up on the thirty fifth floor <laughs> where these pay levels and pay grades uh, exist and people make these decisions I I don't know I haven't got a clue really do you think that you would have enjoyed newspapers or journalism across the board if you'd been a journalist, a journalist rather, coming in now. So if you're a journalist that was just starting and you're working from home, you don't have that environment to work from. You talked about mm. your chief of staff that you initially had mm. that meeting with. He must have given you a lot. And journalists working from home, journalists don't have that energy to work from. Yes, well, we have an office now. So that and and that is an improvement. It, uh, there is still a place for the office where people physically gather, and you can turn and uh, and ask somebody what's the right word, or you can say, "Geez, this annoys me." <laughs> Whereas, if you're at home, you've got to send an email um, to say good morning. It's just uh, it's not as not as good as actually having an office, and even if you're not in there all the time. Do you thrive on that energy? Oh, yeah, I thrive on working in a team with other people, yeah. So what about the young journos that are coming through? Do you think that they will miss out because of the fact that they don't have that environment to work from? I know when I started that it was just awesome, you know, that there was no, well, I didn't, I got cadetted. 
as as you've done. Um, they've got to be a uni graduate these days. Yeah, yeah. Um, they've got and and the uni courses are turning out people who have a fair bit of technical proficiency and they can actually step in and and do things straight away. Um, so I can see why uh, the employers were mad keen on on getting uh, degree courses because they don't have to do the training. And I was lucky. I, I just got a tremendous amount of training from just doing jobs, producing things, all, all doing all the things that I didn't think I was interested in at all. But I look back now and think, well, I, I learnt more from crusty old serve editors saying, what the bloody hell is this <laughs> supposed to bloody mean? Um, than I have from uh, from any courses, really. Are you a crusty old sub-editor these days? Oh, I don't know. I'm just a grumpy old man. <laughs> not, not that, uh, no. I, 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 uh, I think I get on pretty well with the young people uh, who come along in the office because I respect them and I the work that they do and uh, I, I look at some of them and think they're a lot smarter than I was at their age, so I don't... Uh, <laughs> I don't uh, get too crusty, but I I do I I did benefit from from uh, the personal and unpretentious advice that I got from people. What about the standard of journalism these days? Then, if it's not quite so regulated, what about the standard across the board that what you're seeing? Yeah, it's hard to say. There's a lot more information around, and some of it's better done. Some of it's rubbish. That's, <laughs> that's always been the case. Um, oh, I don't know whether I don't know whether I could generalise about that. It's sort of uh, you know swings and roundabouts. Some things are better, some things are worse. I don't know. Who's the person that has influenced you the most, either interviewing or in your journalism career? Mm, gee, lots and lots of people. Um, I always had a lot of time for uh, Quentin Dempster. Um, I knew him at the Telegraph. He started there as a political reporter while I was there. Um, he'd just come down from Meribah, uh, where he was born, I think. Uh, he was influential. So were a few people whose names aren't so well known, a few politicians. A lot of people had an influence uh, who I look back and I think, well, I shouldn't have taken any notice of them. But some, uh, you know. I don't want to leave uh, Quentin out there on his own, but there have been quite a lot of there have been quite a lot of people who aren't as well known now as as Quentin is. Um, what about people you've interviewed? Uh, yeah, I got a. I was very impressed by some of the people that I've interviewed over the years. You know, whenever everyone in journalism thinks they're a smarty pants and and they, you know, referred to as the chattering classes and so forth. I remember going to a press club luncheon about the Queensland gerrymander that existed. Uh, that was, Back in the Bjorki Peterson yeah. days. And they had Sir Robert Sparks, who was National Party state president, I think, and they had uh, someone from the Labor Party and, and someone from the Liberal Party, and I can't remember either of them because they didn't stand out at all like Sir Robert Sparks did, and I didn't agree with him about anything. Um, <laughs> he was just this, you know rich guy from out west and I naturally uh, as a young city person I resented him like mad but he was the smartest person in the room because this 
discussion about the Queensland gerrymander was there was about 80 people there, 60 or 80 people, and the Labor Party people said some thoughtful stuff and the, about how bad it was, and the Liberal Party people said some thoughtful stuff about how bad it was, and Robert Sparks got up and said, if we had one vote, one value, this uh, state would be just run by mindless city trendies. And uh, he just tore strips off all his immediate audience, and you'd have to think, well, he's not going to reach anybody. But he was the only one with the media now to realise that that was being broadcast live all over Queensland on ABC Radio, on Radio National. And all over Queensland, thousands of people, thousands more than were in that room, were saying, good on you, Bob. And they were getting their sound bites in the news that night probably as yeah, well. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. And Bob Sparks was the only one with the media nows to know who his real audience was. Who has the most media nows then these days? Hmm. Well, of course, they all, they all have advisors who've been to university to learn all about having media nows. Um, and there's so much media nows out, out and about these days, you, you just don't know when you're being manipulated and when you're not. Um, but I'd say Anastasia Palaszczuk just proved that she has a tremendous amount of political and media nows. Through the COVID situation? Through the COVID situation. And uh, even when I thought she'd lost points by not being compassionate enough, that quickly slipped into the past and she stuck with it and and uh, it didn't do us any harm, really. It might have hurt the economy, but no more than it did anywhere else. And uh, as far as I can see, it didn't hurt the economy around here. Uh, people, tourism at Rainbow Beach and Imbal has been booming. Uh, Are we just getting on with it, with the whole COVID situation in this area? It doesn't Nothing. really seem to affect us. No, and that's partly, that's partly because of border lockdowns, I think, and... I think Rainbow Beach was busier than it's ever been with people from the Gold Coast not going to uh, Lismore or, or um, Byron Bay anymore. They were coming up here. So um, we we did pretty well. It didn't. I don't think it hurt anyone that I know all that much at all. Does it concern you much, the whole COVID situation, or do you think it's just sort of flattened out now and just everyone's dealing with it? Well, I don't want to die just yet, so I'm glad... <laughs> I'm gl- and I'm probably getting into that um, age group where uh, it could be uh, especially dangerous. I, um, but I feel we're just getting on with it now. But that's partly because it does seem to be under control. So let's hope it stays under control and uh, until we can beat it. And uh, uh, I don't think uh, I think we'll just have to get by without. Uh, a lot of migration until it comes under control in other countries too. And if it ever does. And if it ever does. One of the things you say you don't want to die just yet, what are the things that really worry you? Dying just yet? (laughs) (laughs) I'm not too worried about much at all because almost everything that I've ever worried about has been and gone and didn't turn out to be as bad or long-lasting as I thought. And things do change and political situations change. Mark Twain had a great quote that I've had some terrible experiences in my life and some of them have actually happened. <laughs> That's true too. I think someone said, and I don't know if it was Mark Twain, I've never wished 
uh, that anybody would die, but I have read some obituaries with great enthusiasm. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, it's been an absolute pleasure to spend some time with you and hopefully you enjoy for the foreseeable future your three days a week at Gympie today and enjoy the four days off. More's the point. That's it. Finding that balance. Arthur Gorry, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thank you, Mark. This podcast is brought to you by Marymark Medical. Marymark Medical is your local medical practice in Gympie, specialising in quality family medical care. Are you always sick? Ranging from acute medical issues to management of long-term chronic conditions. When you need to get better, even if you have complex health problems, get the right diagnosis with Marymark Medical. Contact Marymark Medical in Gympie on 54811873 or find them at 18 Young Street. The podcast is also brought to you by Gympie Foam and Rubber, your local store that specialises in foam cup to size. They've got all sorts of good stuff like upholstery and craft foam, even loose spinning foam. The shop is packed with things like mattresses and pillows. Ah, not so squeezy. Now, they'll help you get down and dirty and save your feet with rubber flooring and mats, anti-fatigue matting, and they have industrial mats and rubber. If they don't have it, Andrew will get it in for you. Plus, for Over the Bonnet listeners, mention the show and ask for your discount, and you'll receive 10% off the price. That's right, 10%. Only for Over the Bonnet listeners when you mention the show and you have to ask for your discount. That's at Gimpy Foam and Rubber. And finally, the show is brought to you by NICAD Earth Moving that specialises in roadworks, house pads, site cleanups, land clearing, dam construction, even dewatering and swamp drainage. I didn't even know you could do that. They have a 140H grader which is big and their Positrack Bobcat is also huge. There's a D65 dozer, three excavators for hire, including a 20 ton, 8 ton and a 2.5 ton. Plus they provide side truck hire and even have a roller and a water truck. So contact Carl Dakin at NICAD Earth Moving on 0488 228806 and the earth will move for you.